Today our theme is fantasy, um, and uh, what I'm calling Freud's structural approach uh, to understanding fantasy, a structural analysis, if you like, of fantasy. Now we've had glimpses of this hitherto, but I want to uh, I want to focus particularly on this, these couple of classic essays. The uh, the paranoid woman's one, I think, is a kind of interesting short entree into what I'm calling a sort of structural approach to fantasy and um, the beating fantasies essay has become a kind of classic, endlessly debated in not only in, within psychoanalysis but in literary criticism and film, film studies etc. And the Anna Freud essay is extremely interesting because it picks up um, where Freud le- leaves off um, it recaps Freud's analysis of the beating fantasies and particularly um, the three, the three stages of the beating fantasy, the way it evolves, <coughs> and particularly the importance of the, of, the, of the second stage, the stage of unconscious fantasy, of a, of a fantasy that is, that is uh, uh, unable to be recalled directly as such, which is only accessible through its derivatives in the third stage of, of the fantasy. And uh, she, as it were, uh, picks up what then, what then happens, further stages of development, if you like, phases four, five, six, seven, n, uh, as the kernel of the fantasy gets elaborated in that fascinating description she gives of the, um, uh, of the, young, of the young girl who um, gives up uh, the more obvious um, derivatives of the fantasy and develops into this extraordinary cycle of stories, the nice stories, the nasty stories, um, and she's got the kind of language uh, for this translation of the fantasy from reading a, a book about a knight and a, uh, a, and a young squire who's imprisoned in a castle, etc. And that gives her a kind of code, if you like, for elaborating um, different dimensions of the original fantasy kernel into extraordinary cycles of stories. Um, uh, and then finally, finally, at the end, she writes it down as a way of getting, almost a way of getting rid of the fantasy, of, of a final transformation or sublimation, Anna Freud calls it, um, uh, as a way of, as it were, freeing herself almost of, uh, of the fantasy. So it's a ex- fascinating development um, uh, of, of, of the fantasy, of the analysis of the fantasy. All the more intriguing, of course, because like Freud's Screen Memories essay, um, I think it's now reasonably well established in in, in, in commentary that um, actually Anna Freud's talking about herself uh, uh, and, and that employs, implies very strongly that she was probably one of the one of Freud's original group of, 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 uh, of, uh, of female fantasists who uh, he worked on when he was, he's first trying to analyse the beating fantasy. Okay, um, I've also given you the poem I put on the syllabus sheet because I think that's a fascinating example of a, of a quite sophisticated literary work uh, um, that, that clearly is being animated by uh, a sort of sadomasochistic fantasy that is being transposed into the language of myth of Pan um, uh, and um, the, the, the reeds uh, and uh, the myth of creativity, interestingly, the forming of a poet. But it's quite, I think it's quite clear that uh, there's a kind of fantasy kernel there uh, um, and, uh, and arguably um, uh, of, of the same fantasy kernel that Freud is talking about, of a, of a kind of infantile beating fantasy. Okay, now I want to start with the, the, the short essay on the paranoid woman um, as a way into 
thinking uh, to, to Freud's structural take on fantasy. I mean, we've sort of seen elements of this in both his analysis of trauma, memory, of screen memories, and his um, uh, yeah, and, and, and uh, before that he thinks structurally, uh, and so uh, it's always a question of a scene um, in which there is a set of positions taken up by different figures, and one of the key questions is where is the where is the subject, uh, the subject of the trauma, the subject, the remembering subject, um, the subject of the fantasy, um, the dreamer, the subject of the dream, where are they in their dream stroke, memory stroke, fantasy? And they're not always where you might expect. Or they write themselves out altogether, as in the Beating Fantasies essay, where Freud starts with stage three, because that's what uh, analysands come into analysis or present. Um, uh, a, a, a boy is being beaten by a teacher or by his teachers. Um, where are you? I'm not there. Oh, come on now, where are you? Oh, well, maybe I'm looking on. All right? That's as much as, the, as stereotypically um, the fantasist will, will, will can, can acknowledge or admit to. So the question then is, where is the fantasist in the fantasy? And, uh, of course, the position of the fantasist in the fantasy can change um, and that's one of the fascinations of both the Beating Fantasies essay and the Paranoid Woman uh, 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 essay. Okay, um, so there's clearly analogies here, um, if you like, um, between some of the things we've looked at in, in this course. Um, Freud started, you recall, with a pretty, um, when he's working on trauma, okay, with a model of a scene which is the representation of a specific traumatic event which had to be relived under hypnosis. This is his earlier phase where he's working with hypnotic therapy. But that scene was, was always kept separate from the present moment. Okay? It was not to be confused with uh, the present moment. Um, and this model becomes more and more complicated as we've, as we've seen looking at the material from week to week uh, so far in the course. Um, both respect, with respect to the appearance or form of the scene, um, the content of the scene, and the temporal structure of the scene. So, and what is being repeated so often is a sort of fixed scenario, a, a stylized scene or memory fragment. And in that memory fragment or that scene is condensed some very powerful things, the formative identifications uh, and, and, and the dominant object choices uh, of, of infantile life. And hence, the, stere what the metaphors that Freud uses in the transference papers we looked at, the stereotype plates, the prototypes they're taken from uh, the metaphors from printing, and, the and we can see sort of rough analogies, if you like to use Wittgenstein's phrase, family resemblances between, say, the transference neurosis, the special neurosis that's created in the transference between the analyst and the analysand. On the one hand, on Leonardo's quotes memory of um, the intrusive bird uh, visiting him in his cradle. Uh, and in a, one of the great Freud case studies is written at the same time in 1915 as um, the Paranoid Woman essay, um, The Wolfman, whose whole analysis turns around a dream of wolves that he had um, sitting in a tree looking outside his bedroom window, um, looking at him um, when he was five years old. Now, behind each of these scenes lies, uh, in Freud's analysis, something else. Freud infers infantile prototypes in the transference, a repeated scene of maternal seduction in Leonardo's screen memory, 
And uh, in, the, in the famous Wolfman dream, uh, he, he reconstructs what he calls the, a primal scene, which might or might not be a fantasy. He oscillates between memory and fantasy. And uh, like his analysis of Leonardo's screen memory of the, uh, uh, of the bird, um, uh, and Freud's uh, a sort of tour de force demonstration of a given scene in the Wolfman's dream, um, there's a whole range of later psychical productions uh, from symptoms to artworks that can be produced out of that fantasy kernel, out of that, the kernel of that scene. And it has a determining power in, as it were, the formation of identity and object choice in, uh, in the subject who lives them out in some sense. Now, the notion of a prototype in the transference papers from last... Um, uh, in the first week of this term, morphs into another notion or term that Freud uses in this 1915 paper, and that's the notion of primal fantasies. And I want to say something about that as a kind of reflect on um, the terminology being used here, because there's a lot of um, misunderstanding around the notion of primal fantasies and primal scene, a lot of, and a lot of um, rewriting of the terms in a kind of slide, a conceptual slide very often. So to such an extent that I personally would want to argue that the way most psychoanalysts today use the phrase primal scene is not how Freud used it, though they don't realise that, they think that they're using the way Freud used it. Now, the, the forerunner to the term um, primal, si- primal fantasy, this is in German, okay. in German the phrase is urfantasie, which, which is translated into English as primal fantasy, ur, meaning first, original, uh, etc. The, f- uh, the forerunner to that term, and that's the term he uses in, in today's paper um, of the paranoid woman, um, is the term um, primal scene, which is ur, zena. Again, um, ur and scene, that's a Z. An S is inserted there. Um, Okay, um, now that term, primal scene, um, first emerges as part as a component of the conceptual arsenal of the seduction theory uh, in uh, a manuscript Freud sent to, in a letter to um, Fleece in May 1897. It's called Draft L, uh, a theoretical manuscript in which he's kind of, uh, in which in some ways his seduction theory reaches reaches its most sophisticated form, but it's never published. Okay, it remains unpublished in the, in the, in the um, correspondence and very nearly lost. Now, it's obscured somewhat in the current English translation by uh, Geoffrey Masson, the translator and editor of the Collected Letters of Fleece, because he translates the same term differently in, in quick succession, which is really unhelpful for the English language reader who doesn't read German. Um, now, in the letter, Freud proposes to fleece, that in hysteria, what are repressed, and I'm quoting, are not in reality memories themselves, but impulses that derive from primal scenes. And he translates Erzenen as primal scenes at that point, and he's translating the letter. Okay, what's repressed is not so much uh, memories, but impulses that derive from primal scenes. In the opening sentence, however, of the, of the draft that accompanies the letter, 
Um, the term again appears, Masson translated differently. He, uh, so the opening sentence reads, the aim, the aim of clinical treatment, seems to be to reach the earliest sexual scenes. The earliest sexual in square brackets. That's Masson's interpolation. Um, uh, the earliest scenes. But the, the German word is the same, Erzenen. You wouldn't know it from the, in this translation. So Erzenen, uh, by, by translating the term Ur, um, as primal in one instance and earliest uh, in, in, in another instance. Masson, unfortunately, it has the effect of reducing it to a qu- mere question of chronology or, or what, comes, what comes first. The formulation in the letter um, that is glossed in the next sentence by Freud. Uh, he says, these impulses, bracket, derived from memories. So clearly Freud is using the term to indicate the memory of an actual moment or event. This is distinguished from, but related to, the idea of fantasy. As in the following sentence, Freud writes uh, of his clinical aim in treatment, quote, in a few cases, this aim to access the, the primal scenes is achieved directly, but in others, only by a detour via fantasy, only by a detour via fantasy. These fantasies are psychic facades that are produced in order to bar access to the memories. The fantasies are psychic facades that are, uh, whose function is to bar access to the memory. So you only, what you get is a phantas- phantasmatic reworking of the memory that, that stands uh, as a sort of facade, um, and in a kind of way partly as a defense against the memory and partly as an expression of the, of the forbidden impulses that arise from it. For the most part, um, these primal scenes are known only through the derivative fantasies that defend against them. Um, And they're obviously very disturbing. They need to be managed and processed in some way, both in themselves and the impulses they give rise to, which are then consequently repressed at a a later stage. So the term uh, zenon, or primal scenes, first appears then as part of, but an unpublished part of, the theory of traumatic seduction. And here, memory is in intimate connection with fantasy. Whereas in the letter, of um, the famous letter that's endlessly quoted, that I gave you a copy of, September the 21st, 97, where Freud appears to abandon his theory of traumatic seduction, um, the, two t- the two terms, memory and fantasy, are, are, as it were, alternatives. Either this scene is a memory, or it's a fantasy. Um, and as one can never be sure, um, therefore... Um, Freud reaches a kind of um, impasse or standstill. But he's posing it in that letter as, as if there are alternatives to one another. And that's how, ever since, the seduction theory um, has, been, has been treated. Um, either these scenes are memories or they're simply made up. Okay? And the whole debate that rages around the seduction theory to this very day um, is trapped in that binary opposition of memory versus fantasy. Okay? Um, now, uh, Laplanche is at work, and, and, uh, and I think elements in Freud, which Laplanche himself has kind of underlines and points to, suggest a, an exit from that sort of conceptual impasse or binary opposition. Um, because in, <coughs> at this point, uh, in, in Freud's thinking through of the consequences of, of traumatic primal scenes, um, fantasy is inseparable from them. Uh, it is, is in and through phantasmatic revision and reconstruction that the primal scenes have their effects 
and it's only through attending to those derivative fantasy facades, to use his phrase, um, that we might be able to retrospectively gain access to, through, through reconstruction, just to what, to what um, lies behind them. So the prefix er relates the pr- this term primal scene, however, to two other terms of Freud's, er fantasy, um, and the term uh, primal, primal repression, which is also er verdrangen, er Okay, which is uh, a first repression, primal repression that he posits, which is necessary uh, uh, in order for ordinary, everyday, secondary repression to, to operate. So the, those three concepts have a kind of root connection with each other. Um, and the prefix er indicates a primacy over what comes later, whether it's the primacy of these traumatic scenes over auxiliary scenes, as in the case studies um, uh, of um, latent um, uh, dream, dream wishes and fantasies over conscious daydreams or over the day's residues in the d- model of the dream um, uh, of primal repression in relation to se- what he calls secondary repression. However, the term primal scene doesn't become a, le- a standard term in Freud's theoretical lexicon until the case of the Wolfman, which we're, which we're not looking at. Um, in its first usage in draft L, then a primal scene does not have a particular necessary content. It's not tied to uh, a specific set of personae, dramatis personae, or a s- specific actions. Um, Rather, it, it carries the, un- the meaning of, uh, yes, a sexual scene, but one outside the comprehension of the child, and one that carries an excitation that cannot be mastered or contained, that's ex- in excess uh, of the recipient's capacities for integration and, uh, and um, uh, binding. Uh, so a sexual trauma, but one with the temporal structure of afterwardsness, as, uh, uh, but it's not tied, as I say, to specific scenes or, 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 or personae. Now, Freud doesn't use the, f- the term again from 1897 until he's writing up the Wolfman case history, 1914-15, um, contemporary with the Paranoid Woman essay. So 17 years later, Freud picks up the same term again to designate the scene that he reconstructs as the disturbing event behind the Wolfman's dream of wolves outside his bedroom window. And he continues to use it in the plural, um, as if, as in the original usage, where it might refer to a number of different actions and actors, only one of which is the, ver- is the particular content that Freud here reconstructs in the Wolfman case study, and that is a scene of parental intercourse, which is witnessed or overheard by the child. So F- Freud has often attributed importance to such a scene, um, and he discusses it on a number of occasions in that 17-year period between Draft Al and the Wolfman case, but he has not before referred to it as a primal scene, let alone as the primal scene, and that's very often how in contemporary psychoanalytic discourse, the primal scene is, this, is the scene of parental intercourse. So there's only one primal scene, um, and it's kind of uh, the notion of the primal scene is then um, tied um, to a particular content. It's important, however, I think, to distinguish Freud's own usage of this term from what has come, become the standard psychoanalytic usage, at least in English, where it is used simply to reference con- the question of content, the spectacle of parental intercourse, um, uh, 
with its own peculiar soundtrack that is witnessed or overheard uh, by the child. Now, this reduction to content loses the distinctive conceptual status, that is, if it's just a question of content, signaled by the prefix er. That is, that, what that signals is that this is what Freud calls a vorbild, uh, a prototype or a protoscene that has its primal status in relation to scenes that come later, not just as part of a chronology, but because it offers a kind of model, if you like, um, uh, 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 which forms, enters into the formation of those, of those later scenes. And it's significant that in Freud's later discussions of the scene of parental intercourse, whether as a memory or as a fantasy, um, without reference to the question of time structure, he doesn't call it the parental scene the primal scene. So the notion of primal scene is tied then not, to, not necessarily to the parental content, but to the time structure, question of time structure. The term implies a very specific um, uh, uh, progressive and retrogressive temporal dimension between uh, a sequence of scenes. And he says in the Wolfman case, when he uses that, um, uh, the term primal scene, uh, in the present case, the content of the primal scene is a picture of sexual intercourse between the boy's parents um, in a posture usually favourable for certain observations. So, but, but it could be other contents, right? Um, and the usage now is it's just a... Indeed, if you look up the standard edition in index um, uh, for the term primal scene, you often see it uh, parental intercourse, see pages so-and-so, where the term primal scene doesn't, doesn't appear at all. So it's become so, so interchangeable, so equatable with the notion of the scene of parental intercourse that it's disappeared as a separate concept. It merely, in current discourse, represent, uh, references content and not temporal structure. It's interesting that in French there are two phrases, um, scène primitive uh, and scène originaire, that are used, and sometimes they're just used as if they were synonyms for each other. Um, but there's a tendency within French psychoanalytic discourse to, to, to implicitly differentiate them. So if you're talking about um, the scene of uh, the parental scene, the tendency is to use the first phrase, the sans primitif. Um, and if you're talking about uh, with the main focus on temporal structure, the tendency is to use the phrase sans originaire. They can, however, be used and are used synonymously, but there is that tendency towards to keep um, the conceptual precision of Freud's concept under the under a separate phrases um, from the question of parental of, of, of the parental scene itself. Okay. Now, the term earth fantasy, primal fantasy, first appears in the paper of 1915 that we've read for this week, and there the parental scene figures as a prototype for the production of paranoid symptoms as one scene of a triptych of primal fantasies, as he calls them. Um, uh, uh, but he doesn't, interestingly, call it the primal scene. The phrase doesn't appear at all. Um, but he does talk about a set of primal fantasies. The case is a brief one concerning a woman of 30 who lived along, alone with her mother after her father's death and was her mother's sole support. Um, and it consists of two sessions. In the first session, the woman reports that during an intimate encounter with her lover in his rooms, she was frightened by the sound of a knock or a click, which he explained as probably coming from a small clock on the writing desk in the room, which stood by a heavily curtained window. And on leaving his apartment, um, she meets two men on the stairs in the apartment block, quote, who whispered something to each other when they saw her, unquote, who whispered something to each other when they saw her, unquote. 
and one of whom was carrying something that looked like a box, a small box. On her way home, she rapidly puts together an explanation of what happened uh, in her own mind. The box might have been a camera, the man on the stairs a photographer, possibly, who'd been hidden behind the heavy curtain, and the click that she heard must have been the sound of the shutter as he took a photograph of her in a compromising position with her lover. Thereafter, she pursues her lover with reproaches and demands for explanation, none of which satisfied her, and which led her to engaging a lawyer um, uh, to um, pursue him. Um, and the lawyer, sort of a little bit worried about you know, how, how plausible these narratives are, uh, persuades her to go and see Herr Professor Freud. Now, Freud's interest in the case, in this case of what he calls paranoia running counter to the theory of the disease. It looks like a counterexample, something that would challenge um, uh, his theory of paranoia, and that's why he's particularly interested in it. He builds that possibility into his title, running counter to the theory of the disease. And it was due to the fact of the young woman's accusations of persecution being directed against a male persecutor. Now, the significance of that is uh, that psychoanalytic theory um, uh, uh, was working with the hypothesis that paranoia was based on repressed homosexual feelings, such that former same-sex love objects returned as persecutors. That was the hypothesis that Freud's working on with paranoia. And I should just comment in passing that in um, later generations, um, particularly in the mid-20th century, that is often misread, Freud's hypothesis, as paranoia is caused by homosexuality. Homosexuality produces paranoia. Whereas, of course, Freud's argument is it's the repression of homosexuality, which is something uh, rather different, uh, that, that produces um, or can produce paranoid fantasies. Freud asked her uh, then uh, to come back and see him for a second session, uh, and in this second session, interestingly, she reveals the fact that she'd visited the man on two occasions, but that on the first of these occasions, which she hadn't mentioned to Freud, um, and she hadn't mentioned it to Freud because there were no problems associated with the first time. She only told him in her first visit to Freud of the second visit to the man. Now, I think there's a kind of strange parallel between the visits to Freud and the visits to her lover, but they're in reverse order. So it's only on the second visit to Freud um, that she thinks to tell Freud about her first visit to the young man's rooms. Nothing happened, no problems. But, she adds, on the day after this first visit, um, something had in fact happened. At her workplace, where the man also worked, she had a superior, an older woman, with whom she had an affectionate relationship and whose favourite she was, and whom she described to Freud as, quote, having white hair like my mother, having white hair like my mother, unquote. The young man then appears in the office the day after their, their tryst um, to discuss some business with her superior. And as she watches them together talking quietly to each other, and can hear the parallel here between the, t the, 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 the lover and the superior uh, talking quietly to each other, uh, and the two whispering men on the stairs that she sees on her second visit, she became convinced that he was in fact telling her superior of their sexual encounter the day before. She becomes absolutely convinced that that's what they're talking about. And as she continues to stare at them uh, and to think about it, it also begins to occur to her that the unlikely matched couple of the young man and the older superior woman with white hair 
had in fact been having a love affair that she had hitherto unaccountably overlooked. How could she have missed it? Now seems to her so obvious. The result was that, in Freud's words, quote, the white-haired motherly old lady now knew everything. The white-haired motherly old lady now knew everything and disapproved. Freud traces in the development of the young woman's paranoid fantasy through two separate stages. In the first stage, the superior is clearly a mother substitute, and her lover, against all probability, is promoted to the position of the mother's partner, viz. the the father figure, in this suddenly postulated and um, implausible love affair. Freud argues that, quote, her love for her mother had become the spokesman for all those tendencies which, playing the part of a conscience, seek to arrest a girl's first step along the new road to normal sexual satisfaction, in many respects a dangerous one. That has a particular cultural resonance we're talking here about the turn of the century. Um, the difficulties of, uh, of, uh, of, of possible pregnancy, of being publicly exposed as having sex outside marriage for a single woman who was trying to hold down a job, etc., etc., Though the term has yet to be invented, um, the concept of a maternal superego is clearly operative here in a kind of implicit or untheorized but practical form. Freud also insists that, quote, the lover had not become the persecutor uh, directly, but via the mother and in virtue of his relationship to the mother. In this stage, the superior at work as mother substitute and the man, as her partner, form a kind of parental couple, whispering together, sharing a sexual secret. And that secret shifts as she watches them from being, first of all, the secret of the young woman's um, sexual encounter with her lover on the day before, to becoming the secret of the older woman's prior sexual relationship with the man that she had, until that point, not been aware of. And she divines all this just by looking at them. So... um, she has then been evicted from her relationship with the man and is now on the outside looking in at the secrecies together, shared secrecies of the parental couple. That's in the first stage. In the second stage of the paranoid delusion, on her second visit to the man's rooms, um, she has rejoined her lover on the couch, uh, but she now feels she is being watched by another gaze. Okay as Freud plots the transformation of the delusional structure from phase one to phase two, and I quote, the patient's lover was still, in her, still her father, but she had, taken, she had taken her mother's place. The part of the listener had, however, then to be allotted to a third person. In other words, it's a three-term structure, uh, and a kind of like a change of musical chairs takes place. Again, as Freud states, she, she herself became her mother, and he sketches the unconscious train of thought that is implied by such a rivalrous eatable identification. Quote, if my mother does it, I may do it too. I've just as good a right as she has. If my mother does it, I may do it too. I've just as good a right as she has. Unquote. The noise or click that interrupted the second love scene is not just an accidental circumstance that gave rise to the fantasy of being watched and photographed. Quote, but, Freud says, something inevitable something which was bound to assert itself compulsively in the patient, just as when she supposed that there was a liaison between her lover and the elderly superior, her mother substitute. In other words, it wasn't just accidental. There was something um, predetermined about that. 
um, that, that, that the compulsion with which she makes that move. The compulsion arises from an underlying fantasy as prototype, which gives its structure to both stages of the paranoid delusion. And Freud writes about, uh, goes on then to formulate his notion for the first time in a sketchy way of what he calls primal fantasies. Among the store of unconscious fantasies of all neurotics, and probably of all human beings, there is one which is seldom absent and which can be disclosed by analysis. This is the fantasy of watching sexual intercourse between the parents. I call such fantasies, and he lists them, the observation of sexual intercourse between the parents, the fantasy of seduction, of castration, uh, and others. I call these primal fantasies, ur fantasies, prototype fantasies, if you like. Fantasies that don't just come first, but lay down a template um, on which later scenes uh, are formed and modelled. The conceptual profile, then, of the primal fantasies is only lightly sketched in here in a preliminary sort of way as a core set of fantasy scenes that are found with a certain predictability among, quote, all neurotics and probably all human beings, unquote. So the notion of a prototype or stereotype plate for individual fantasy production is given here, but only sketchily, a social or collective dimension. And this we receive a further elaboration in Lecture 23 from the introductory lectures, and I've given you that extract um, in the handout. So this is Freud going back a couple of year, a year or two later to his notion of um, uh, primal fantasies, um, and I'm just going to pick out a, a, a few bits, uh, beginning on page 416, which is one side of on the left-hand side. Um, he says, well, among the occurrences which recur again and again in the youthful history of neurotics, um, there are a few of particular importance which also deserve on that account, to be greater prominence. As specimens of this class, I will enumerate these. Observation of parental intercourse, seduction by an adult, threat of being castrated. It would be a mistake to suppose they are never characterised by material reality. On the contrary, this is often incontestably established through inquiries from older members of the patient's family. It is by no means a rare thing for a little boy who is playing with himself in a naughty way. is not yet aware one must conceal such activities and is threatened by a parent or a nurse with having his penis or his sinful hand cut off. Parents will often admit this when they are asked since they think they have done something useful in making such a threat. Uh, a number of persons have a, a co correct conscious memory of such a scene. However, he says... Um, and if the threat is delivered by uh, a mother or a female figure, she usually attributes it to um, the father or a doctor figure, as in the case of Little Hands that we saw. And um, she cites the famous Struhl Petter book that I think I showed you, um, where um, uh, uh, Little Sucker Thumbs has his thumb cut off for sucking um, uh, when he's been told not to. He says, however, it's highly improbable that children are threatened with castration as often as it appears in the analysis of neurotics. We shall be satisfied by realising that the child puts a threat of this kind together in his imagination on the basis of hints, helped out by a knowledge that autoerotic satisfaction is forbidden um, and under the impression of his discovery of the female genitals that you might lose, um, uh, lose your penis. Um, and he goes through the other ones as well, saying, yes, sometimes there can, be, uh, there can actually have happened as an event, but actually that can't explain uh, the predictability and the generality of these fantasy structures. 
And at the bottom of page 417, he says, there is, the only impression we gain is that these events of childhood are somehow demanded as a necessity, that they are among the essential elements of our neurosis, that there's a structural requirement almost. If they have occurred in reality, so much to the good. But if they have been withheld by reality, they are put together from hints and supplemented by fantasy. The outcome is the same. Um, again, that would be extremely contested by other um, clinicians and psychoanalysts. Um, the material reality or the, and the fantasy of, an, of, of a given reality have, have quite different events, I th- uh, consequences. Um, whence comes the need for these fantasies and the material for them? And Freud then moves back into a kind of um, imaginary or hypothetical anthropology um, because he needs some way of grounding this puzzling um, generality, if not universality, then generality, this predictability of these fantasy structures that he says just can't be explained by their happening as, as real events. So what explains them? And he, and he proposes that, the, that they are what he calls, these, prim, what, these things that he calls primal fantasies that are, occur again and again, are created in the same way. There's a kind of uniformity about them. Uh, these are a phylogenetic endowment, something that belongs almost, that is transmitted by the species almost genetically. And in them, the individual reaches beyond his own experience into primeval experience at points where his own experience has been too rudimentary. Um, and then he speculates in this rather uh, fanciful way that um, all these sees, scenes were once literally acted out in the prehistory of the human family. So he's driven, because he can't find a, a, a material grounding of these fantasy structures in the individual life history, to posit them as kind of primeval events in the, in, in the phylogenetic history of the race. So you see a kind of regression to a kind of notion of heredity. And it's a hereditary in which fantasies are transmitted or encoded genetically. Okay. And Laplanche reads very much as as an impasse in his thought. Um, That it's an expression of a conceptual blockage um, consequent on um, uh, the loss of the model of the relation to the the other figure. If, this, if you're not thinking about fantasy in terms of the fantasist subject, the fantasizing subject's relationship to a kind of um, to to to, the, to to a parental or an adult other figure, um, and build that in, um, then you're going to have a problem about explaining why certain structures should be that appear to come from the outside, uh, all right? Um, not just merely to be um, purely the expression of the um, experience of the individual. Um, so. Uh, the, the, the notion of primal fantasies then is tied up with this notion of sort of hereditary phylogenesis in Freud. And one of the reasons why um, uh, that, that makes the beating fantasies essay so interesting is that written at the time when it was written, which is virtually uh, you know, a, a year or so later, Freud gives a very different account of the genesis um, of, uh, of, of a fundamental fantasy, of a fundamental foundational fixated and fixating fantasy structure, which is and he doesn't invoke phylogenesis at all so that's what's so interesting about um, or one of the things, there's a number of things that are very interesting about um, Freud's account of the three stage um, evolution of the beating fantasies and and in each of the stages those three stages that he describes the fantasizing subject is differently positioned, is located at a different point in the structure just as the, the paranoid woman moves from different, from different positions um, in her paranoid fantasy. I'll say a few things about 
the Beating Fantasies essay. Okay, so the Beating Fantasies essay, again, is a very, very common, quite frequent um, fantasy structure that, turns, that is presented in analysis. And the form in which it's presented, of course, is the stage three form. Okay? Um, it's, a, it's a scene of beating between uh, a child, and almost invariably a, a, a male child, a boy child, and adult authority figures. Um, and it's, and it is atta- it's associated with a kind of masturbatory um, uh, sexual excitement and, and indeed leading to, to orgasm. But when the fantasist is asked, you know, where are you? They say, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not present. And if pressured, might say, well, maybe I'm looking on. But they, they definitely ruled themselves out of the fantasy scene. It's not about them. Um, so the structure, as it were, renders them invisible in its final form, regardless of the sex of the fantasist. Um, okay. Now, in this bare formula, a child, uh, and Freud's formula for the fantasy structure is a child is being beaten. So, so by who, who is the child, all that's variable. But the, but the kind of core, the core structure is a child is being beaten. In adulthood, this bare formula can be elaborated into quite complex narratives, um, and they differ. There's, a, there's a kind of male and female trajectory Freud attempts to sketch out, but he doesn't have enough material to fill out the, males, the male trajectory very fully. Um, the fantasy is persistent and highly sexually charged, accompanied by masturbation. Now, he traces this back to a first stage that can be formulated as, my father is beating a child, bracket, usually a brother or sister, both of these stages are consciously um, remembered and entertained. That is to say, stage one and stage three are, are co- fully conscious. Okay? If stage three is the masturbatory fantasy. Stage one is sort of can be reached by um, you know, some kind of me- me- memory association. Um, scenes come up of the father beating siblings or whatever in childhood. Um, However, Freud explains the der- derivation of the final stage of the fantasy, stage three, from the first stage via a second unconscious stage, formulated as, I am being beaten by my father. Okay? So you can see how the scene shifts. My father is beating a child, uh, and later the detail is added, uh, a child whom I hate, <laughs> right? i.e. a rival, a rival brother, sister, sibling, or whatever. Um, and, and the other detail that is sometimes added at a later stage, on the naked bottom. Okay. Um, then the second stage is, I am being beaten. So the, the, the fantasist moves from being uh, the explicit watcher, the explicit watcher who takes some schadenfreude, some gratification from watching their, their, the hated rival being beaten by the father, to the unconscious stage, I am being beaten by my father. And then the third uh, transformation of that unconscious fantasy into the third state, the masturbatory, conscious masturbatory fantasy that is compulsively repeated over and over again, um, which is uh, uh, some boys, a boy, some boys are being beaten by teachers, fathers, policemen, whatever. Okay. And I'm not there. The first stage Freud describes not even quite as a fantasy. It's a proto-fantasy, he says, a pre-fantasy. Barely, barely to be distinguished from memory and the reactions to actual events. It is perhaps rather a question um, uh, of recollections of different events which have been witnessed and desires that have arisen on a variety of different occasions. Okay. 
Of the second stage, however, he observes that while the person beating remains the father, the child being beaten has changed into the child producing the fantasy. It's the fantasist who appears on scene, on stage in the fantasy, which is accompanied by the intense pleasure of a masochistic kind. Most strikingly, Freud says of it, quote, in a certain sense it has never had a real, in inverted commas, existence. It is never remembered. It has is, it is, it is never succeeded in becoming conscious. It is a construction of analysis, but no less a necessity on that account. So a scene that you can only infer retrospectively from its derivatives. Laplanche's commentary on uh, Freud's analysis argues a double thesis. The material exemplifies the specificity of unconscious fantasy in that it is different from memory, from the memory from which it has arisen. Indeed, it's a transformation of that memory. Um, the, the, fantasy, the, 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 the subject gets in on the action, becomes part of the action. Uh, and it's also different from the conscious masturbatory fantasy that in turn derives from it. The virtually permanent repression of the second stage is not a form of memorization of an actual scene, but the production of a new and different psychical reality, as a phrase Freud uses, a sort of petrified scene, a fixated scene, uh, which is not a copy of the events that have preceded it. And Laplanche notes that Freud terms the second unconscious stage uh, an ursprünglicher Fantasie. An ursprünglicher Fantasie. You've still got the term ur in it. Um, but the, it's effectively, there's a whole word, ursprung, in German, which means origin. Okay? There should be a diaresis. Umlaut over the U. Okay? Ursprünglicher Fantasy. Now, such a formulation, as Laplanche puts it, quote, competes with and even invalidates the conception of ur fantasies, primal fantasies, of phylogenetic origin, which had been formulated two or three years earlier. Despite Freud's allusion to man's archaic heritage elsewhere in the Beating Fantasies paper, his analysis of the Beating Fantasy indicates, in Laplanche's words, that the unconscious fantasy can be original, ursprünglicher, without ceasing to be the product of an individual process. So it can be original, and original means both there at the beginning, at the origins, but also capable of originating. It's got that double force to it, okay? Something that is there at the origins of things, but it's not just merely chronologically first. It's not a, a mere chronological point in a linear conception of time. Okay, but, but that it has the capacity to originate um, uh, and, and to give form to uh, uh, later events. So the status of the real event at the first stage is very different um, from a kind of archaeological detective work where you must find the exact precise event encoded. Okay? Uh, because there's a number of different events, Freud says, you know, that will have all somehow or other overlapped and converged. So different circumstances that have been able to convey, to you, as, as Laplanche would say, um, the same enigmatic message has been transmitted. What's significant, is then, is the subject's reworking, um, translation, Freud uses that term, translation of the enigmatic message transmitted through um, being shown the spectacle of, um, of uh, I, the father, punish, beat these um, uh, naughty children, your rivals. So uh, Laplanche's main thesis here uh, is that infantile scenes, the scenes with which psychoanalysis is concerned, are first and foremost 
messages, enigmatic messages. They have encoded enigmatic messages. Um, so what's at stake in the familial drama between father and siblings is not simply a material sequence of events, uh, but th the fact that they are presented to the child. Okay? They are transmitted to the observing child. As Laplanche rather dryly observes, if a little brother or sister is beaten in the presence of the child in question, it's not as if it were merely beating an egg white in the kitchen. It's there's some intensity involved in this scene, in this tableau, as it were. That my, and, and this comes out very much in um, the, child, the further description of the statement, my father is beating the child whom I hate. In the emotionally loaded contact, the father's act is not innocent. It sends a message on the, of which, part of which only has been translated by the child. Um, and he, he makes that, the child makes that leap. Right? My father does not love this other child. He loves only me. He loves only me. He is showing me that he's punishing my hated rival. He loves only me. That's the child's benign translation of the message. Um, but uh, in the, the, but in the, what drops out from that that, that ego-gratifying translation, of course, is this disturbing second scene um, that remains always unconscious. Uh, my father is beating me. And here, as Freud um, decodes it, the beating is both a substitute for the sexual act and a punishment for it at the same time. It's that similar... The fantasy of the first stage of incestuous love had said, he, my father, loves only me, not the other child, for he's beating the other child. The sense of guilt um, for that can discover no greater punishment more severe than the reversal of this triumph. No, he does not love you, for he is punishing you. He is beating you. But the punishment and the forbidden gratification coincide in the same phantasmatic act, the act of beating. Okay. So it has this um, intense masochistic investment. Um, it's simultaneously exciting, forbidden, and shaming, because it's an act of punishment. And so it's this over-determination of, of the fantasy scene and of the fantasy action um, that, um, that, that is responsible for this fixated, um, arrested, petrified um, nature of the, of the scene and therefore of its compulsiveness uh, and its capacity then to generate later derivatives um, again and again which can be reworked in different ways um, as in stage three where um, the, the uh, excited, desiring, but guilty subject writes themselves out of the scene, but goes on watching the scene. And of course, Freud's analysis of it is, where is the... F it looks like if you say somebody gets off on watching a scene of somebody being beaten, you might think, oh, well, they're a bit of a sadist. They like, they like punishment being handed out. But Freud's argument is, no, they're located there in the position of the, of the, beaten, of the beaten child. But because they're not present, hey, it's okay, Right? Now, the interesting thing about Anna Freud is that she follows the different step, the, the further capacities for transformation that such a fantasy kernel can undergo, okay? and extraordinary uh, they are, and multiple and, uh, and expansive they are. Okay? So that's what I hope we'll take up in the seminars. And maybe even get round to looking at the poem. Um, but do read over the poem uh, uh, before the seminar.